another episode of the Cycling Tips Podcast. I am Abby Mickey. I am joined by James Wong. James, hello. Hi, Abby. Very lovely airstream you have behind you. Well, you know, I'm going to go camping in Moab this weekend, so I figured I may as well start getting in the mood. Not in an airstream, though. Those things are... Not cheap. Fancy and expensive. Yeah, exactly. Not cheap. I will be sleeping in my car. <laughs> Dane Cash, how are you today? Yeah, doing fine. Nice. Another good weekend of racing. Every, every Monday we have this conversation i feel like because i'm always just so wowed that we keep getting these great races i'm wondering when the boring stuff is going to start but not yet probably at the tour probably <laughs> maybe before who knows? don't jinx it ronan how are you i'm good yeah good weekend of biking finally have some sun here in ireland um and, uh, yeah we're we're like totally unprepared for any sort of good or really bad weather so when the snow comes we can do nothing and now we've had two days of sunshine and we have wildfires everywhere Saw that on the news. I did a double take. Like wildfires there? That's not something you expect. Yep, we're we, we're we're perfect when the weather is just middling. Anything other than middling, and we're out of our depth. And last but definitely not least, Shadi. Hello. Hello there. <laughs> you. Were, I'm so, waiting for a question, Ab. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, weather the- is terrible. If you want an, an opinion, sounds like Ronan's got the good stuff it, it, next to the Atlantic at the moment. Tipping it down. Not bike riding weather. You're beside the wrong Atlantic. We're beside the Atlantic as well on sunshine. Fair enough, yeah. I'm right down south, right in the Basque country at the moment. So we have a ton to cover today. We had two really exciting one-day races happen since we last recorded a podcast, La Flèche Wallonne and liege Basson liege technically four uh, really exciting races. Um, Some updates on the Tour of the Alps and... Tour of Romandy is about to start. Before we get started on all of the racing news, Shadi, what have you got for us about Continental today? All right, people, we're going to uh, talk about sidewalls. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but trust us, it is. Continental recently added a tan wall option to its Grand Prix 5000s, if you prefer that bit more of a retro look, which who doesn't at the moment? It's only available in 700 by 25 and 28 millimeter sizes, but it's otherwise identical to the regular GP5000. Continental has retained the same black chili compound, active comfort technology, the Vetran puncture breaker, and excellent grip, along with the same rolling resistant properties. I'm kind of wondering if Conti should add more colors at some point. No, definitely not. All you need is black and tan. If that's not enough for you, well, get yourself down to some toy shop and buy some, I don't know, blue, pink, cheap you know, ones. I, I, I disagree. I bet, I bet if they were to do like some, you know, some, some various colors in like limited edition runs, I bet they would sell out every time. Yeah, but come on, James. We want a bit of style while you're riding. We don't want, we don't want a rainbow pellet on, on rolling down the street too much. There's, a, there's plenty of dodgy looking jerseys out there making the peloton look a bit too colorful at times you don't want the, the sidewalls doing the same as well what are, are we gonna are we gonna just devolve into a discussion about the rules no i'm sure that's gonna happen later what people people can't run green tires if they want to are they not allowed hey, what are you saying here shoddy let's not go down the green route mm. stick with let's stick with the orange of continental <laughs> mm. all right well thank you so much to continental for supporting this episode and Let's get into it, Dane. Should we start with La Flesh Wallone? Yeah, let's. Uh, that was the first of the big races that, that happened on, on Wednesday. And we'll start with the women's race, I think. The women's race, I was pretty uh, entertained and a little bit surprised, very surprised, actually. The, the run-in to the New York de Hui at, uh, at La Flesh Wallone was actually very entertaining this year. We don't usually get that. We usually get a uh, relatively quiet race. Uh, on, on the run-in, and, and we had plenty of action. And it was, uh, it was not a big group that climbed the Mira de Hui together. And that was, that was pretty cool. So uh, you, you, you uh, would probably talk a little bit more intelligently about what happened in the race than I, Abby. So you want to you tell us what happened? Yeah, it was a pretty aggressive race. Flash Wallone is a really interesting event because since it's so selective, the final climb, it's really kind of a boring race it's maybe not the favorite race of people both viewers and riders um but this year was definitely 
something different. Ruth Winder was off the front going into the base of the Muir, and a group of elite riders were behind her, including Demi Vollering, Annemiek van Vluten, Anna van der Bregen, uh, Cecily Utrip Ludwig, Kashin Iwadoma, really the riders that we've seen perform at all the races leading up to, up to La Flèche Wallonne. On the climb, Anna van der Bregen did her normal thing where she just kind of sits on the front, rides really hard, shells everybody behind her, but Kashin Iwadoma had an incredible performance and was really neck and neck with Anna van der Bregen up until the final couple hundred meters where she surged, but couldn't quite beat van der Bregen and van der Bregen won her seventh consecutive La Flesh Wallone, which is a little bit wild. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was a really exciting race up into the line. I think if you'd looked at the finish, if you looked at the results and you'd said, Oh, and Van der Bregen wins for the seventh year in a row, you would have been like, oh, well, I can skip watching that race. But it was exciting up until the very second she crossed the line. And Kasha, especially, her performance was really incredible. Anna Van der Bregen, after the race, said it, it was a little bit odd that she was sitting there for the last time having race flesh alone, um, which was great. And uh, the funniest part was when the, the um, guy interviewing her said, Oh, but you have to do it again on Sunday. And she said, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> it was a really good race. It was um, an interesting thing ab about the race is just the fact that she's been able to win so many times in a row, which Ronan and I talked about extensively after the race had happened. And I think it has a lot to do with that, that mere to we. And also it's kind of wild how lucky she's been that nothing has gone wrong in seven years that she's been able to win that many times. I mean, it's not just about her strength and and the course itself, it's also just an incredible amount of luck. Is there anybody else who's won not just seven times in a row, but a race seven times? We won't, we won't go down, we, sh we shall say actually, seven times that have stuck in the rule book uh, with the UCI. We won't go down the, that Americans route. But is there anybody who's won, yeah, se just seven uh, one-day races in a row? I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. Uh, Merck, Merck's won San Remo uh, seven times, I think. Fair enough then. Not in, in a, a row. Not in a row. No, no, just, just period. Mm. Uh, but he did win San Remo sometimes. But he's Eddie Merckx, so that, that's the kind of company we're talking about here, which is pretty impressive. Not bad company. Yeah. And yeah, but as we sort of discussed last Wednesday after the finish, like it, it's the, the nature of the race does, does, you know, lend itself to, I suppose, the strongest rider winnings on so many occasions. But as you just said there now, you know, to have seven years where nothing went wrong, even just as simple as being out of position coming into the bottom of the climb, it's like, you know, the, the, the fight for position coming into that, that climb every year just seems so chaotic. And to be able to put herself in that, you know, the right position every time, yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that someone can achieve that so many, so many years in a row, I guess. It's definitely easy to get caught out going up that, or going into that climb in the wrong position. Like, I'm sure Ron's raced up it, rolled up it. Rolled up it was enough for me. I never raced up it. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it, it's a it's a bun fight every time you go into the bottom of it. Like, I've said, no, I haven't done that race, but I've done others in that region. And it's, yeah, it's narrow enough to make it difficult to get to where you want to be. And once, it's, once you're in that position, getting out of it's difficult because people are just left, right and centre, slowing down, not going as fast as you want to. It's... It's definitely not a normal finish, is it? Yeah, and really she said in her post-race interview, and also obviously we saw on the live coverage, that what put her in the position to be so well-placed at the base of the climb was Demi Vollering and, and Demi Vollering's effort before getting to the climb to bring Ruth back. Um, Anna Vanderbergen said that they had messed up their tactics and that things had gone wrong prior to to that moment coming into the base of the climb, but really gave a lot of props to Demi Vollering for getting her to the bottom of the climb with a shot at winning, which we'll talk about Liege, Brass and Liege shortly, but the two things tie together and it, it was a really incredible kind of two days of racing to see from, from SD works and Demi and, and Anna especially. So what happened in the men's race, Dane? Men's race was, a little more traditional, a little less selective on the run into the line. There were still attacks, and it was still interesting to watch, but as usual, the attacks didn't really do much. It didn't whittle down the peloton the way that 
some of the action uh, in the women's race did. And so what we had was a, the, the kind of expected finale where the big names we all thought were going to be there were well positioned on the run into the mirror uh, at the head of a, a pretty big pack. And Primus Roglic was the first big name to really launch a move. And it was a really powerful move. And he got some space. He got a few bike lengths clear. And for a few moments, it looked like he might be able to hold on. He jumped from, I think it was like 300 meters out, which on the Mir de Huy, as steep as that climb is, that's like, that's an eternity that you have to spend going on your own if you go from 300 meters out. Uh, but it did look, I mean, there was a, there was a, a time there in, in the first, I don't know, 150 meters where he seemed like he might be on his way to the, to the victory with uh, Julien Alaphilippe and uh, Alejandro Valverde right behind him. Uh, but Valverde uh, and Alaphilippe kind of started to close in a little bit. And then Alaphilippe really, um, yeah, he, he just pulled across with about 150 meters to go, pulled even with Roglic. They were both kind of neck and neck. And then Alaphilippe being the, I think the slightly punchier rider and probably having a little more left in the tank because he didn't quite go from as far out, uh, ended up pulling clear, took the, took the sprint win at the line, basically. Uh, and... He did what he does quite often, celebrated a little bit early, uh, but he he took the pretty clear win, so I guess it was fine. Uh, Roglic settling for second, Valverde in third, Mike Woods in fourth, and ended up being a pretty traditional finish. I mean, this is a race that Julian Alaphilippe has now won three times, uh, 2018, 2019, and then this year. And yeah, it kind of played out the way that it often does. But it was still great to watch that last one minute, one and a half minutes. Uh, so if you... It's sort of it's kind of like San Remo in that way, but even more condensed. Where it's all about the finale, except the finale of the Mir de, on the Mir de Huy for the men's flesh was like, yeah, it was about a minute and a half. But it was great. It was a great minute and a half. Really, really enjoyed that minute and a half. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe finally getting a big win on the year. He won a stage at Torino, but other than that, he had not taken a victory yet. This is his first World Tour one day win, in actually quite a while. Uh, so he was pretty happy with that at the, at the finish to have finally kind of gotten this big win. Um, it's not like he hasn't won the rainbow jersey yet. He has, but this is a, a, the biggest win he's gotten yet in the rainbow jersey. And I think after kind of a second place at Strata, not having quite the classics campaign he wanted, this was a nice way for him to, yeah, uh, feel like he he was in good form this year. You don't always get the wins you want, but he definitely was in good form and proved it at, at Flesh Malone this year. Great, great win for Alaphilippe, even if it only really was entertaining for about a minute and a half. If we're talking about bad positioning and struggling to get a good position, I reckon Mike Woods could have been a little bit further. Like he could have got on the podium. Like you saw him early on in the race, 300 metres, he was still blocked in. It was amazing that he got fourth, if I'm honest. I was really impressed at him. And then obviously impressed at him later on in the in the week as well. He's, he's firing on all cylinders. So yeah, he managed to get that fourth place. When I... Didn't think he would even get in, in, well, within the top five, looking to where he was with 300 meters to go. We've seen that with his uh, his now teammate Dan Martin in the past several times. I feel like Martin is the kind of rider who you would have expected to have won this race multiple times in his career, just given his skill set and the fact that he was up here, up there in the top several spots many, many times. But there were a lot of instances where he just wasn't quite in good position. And it's just so important, as we've already talked about in this podcast on the Mir de Huy, that you're at least close to the front. Because that winding, super steep road where everybody's packed in, I mean, it's it's so important. Which I, I guess is just another another reason why it's amazing that Anna van der Breggen's won it seven times. And I mean, even just winning it three times for Alaphilippe, that's impressive. Or Valverde won the race like what five times, four times. I mean, it, it's it's kind of remarkable how people are able to get into that position when it is so important and to do it so consistently. It's such a big deal on this on this climb. All right, moving on to the next one day, Liege Bastogne Liege on Sunday. Pretty great race, I thought. Dane? Yeah, uh, we should talk about the women's race first again. And because you so wonderfully worked on your Sunday and wrote the race report, Abby, I, I feel like you're the expert on this one. Uh, it, was a, it was a good one. It was a really interesting race. I think given the way that the Peloton has been racing so far this year and how aggressive everyone's been, I was surprised to see such a big group come into the Cote de la Rochefon, which is the final climb of the race. The last two years, the winning move has gone on Cote de la Redoute. And this year, it was a pretty big group that came into that final climb together. Cecily Uterbludwig made moves a little bit on the final climb to kind of break the group, but it ended up being Anna Vanderbregen who really set the pace up that climb. She didn't attack. She just kind of set a pace that dropped everyone except those eight 
ish riders that we've seen really feature in the last handful of races. It was Kashini Wadoma, Elise Longaborghini, uh, Demi Vollering, Mariana Voss, and Cecily Utrup Ludwig got a little bit distance from the group, got back on, and then got dropped again. On the run into the finish after the final climb, there was one more surprise climb, and Annemiek Van Vluten took that opportunity to try to get away, but due to headwind or perhaps she's not really looking like the Annemiek Van Vluten of the last few years. She wasn't able to get away, and in the end it was Van de Bregen who ended up doing a 10-kilometer long lead-out. The pace she set was just the perfect speed so that no one could attack. I think I wouldn't have been shocked to see attacks from Elisa Longaborghini and Kashini Wadoma, but neither of them were able to go with the pace that she was setting and she rode the 10 kilometers to the finish it came down to a bunch sprint of the f- those five riders and Demi Vollering took her first world tour victory. Annemiek Van Vluten finished in second with Elisa Longaborghini in third. Seeing the world champion lead out her younger and less experienced teammate is not something we see very often. I'm not saying it wasn't the right decision. Clearly it was. And there was a lot of thought put into the team riding for Demi at Liege-Bastogne-Liege, given how she's been riding earlier this year. And she's been third at the race before. It's clearly a finish that suits her. She's good at those short climbs. She's a very, very capable sprinter. But seeing the world champion give up any chance at a result is not something we see very often so that was really incredible to see from Anna Vanderbregen. Particularly remarkable that Anna Vanderbregen decided hey I'll ride for a teammate in what is her final attempt at this race a race that she's a favorite in she's constantly a favorite in uh, and this is this is sort of her swan song year and she yeah she decided to ride for someone else and maybe the team told her to but I feel like she has a pretty I feel like she would have a, a strong uh uh, vote in how things play out. Uh, if Anna Vanderbregen oh, says, hey, yeah. I want to ride for myself at Liège in my final season uh, as a pro with this team, I think they'd say, yeah, that sounds fine. Uh, so clearly she was, she'd bought into that. And the fact that she did that, it's, it's, it's remarkable, it's cool, uh, and, and it worked out. And I, I, can't really th- I can't really think of things kind of going any better than they did. Because if she decided to sort of play that teammate role for someone else and it didn't work out, I mean, that... that that makes everybody look bad. It it it, uh, it it just worked out perfectly though, and so they have another you know monument winner on the team. They have clearly a, a reason to be confident about what's next for this team. Uh, they may have two of their big riders kind of hanging up the hanging up the wheels this year and next in Van der Breggen and Chantal Van der Broek Black, but they they're clearly in good hands with with the young talent that's on that team. Yeah, and this race has never come down to a sprint before or a group before. It's only been won by a, by a solo rider. And it is entirely possible that Van der Bregen could have won it solo. I mean, she was riding so well at Flesh, and that was even after being sick um, before Amstel. But she's still, I think, from what I could tell, really dedicated her whole day to making sure that Volering got there as fresh as she could. And even when Volering was distanced, I mean, we've seen how strong Volering has been so far this season and how consistent she's been. So there's no doubt in my mind that even when she was distanced, she was saying into the radio, I'll get back on, I'll get back on, and and was able to get back on. Evander Bregen's tempo or pace on the on the final climb, the it was really to shell all of the people that could have competed with Volering. The fact that Volering was able to hold on to that group and Voss couldn't is just speaks volumes to her as a rider and what she's going to be capable of in the future. Because keep in mind, this is her third year racing professionally. That's wild. If you put her in that group with all those riders who have been racing their bikes for a lot longer than her. Yo, Abby, you, um, you kind of called Demi Volering having a big season. Uh, and then again, in your preview, you gave her her own section. You know, it, it could have been just the Anna van der Breggen section. I think nobody would have faulted you for that. But I feel like you kind of called this. And I just wanted to, I want our listeners to know, and everybody on the podcast, that, that you were very much uh, on top of Demi Vollering, having a great season so far and looking like she's going to be 
the next big thing. Or maybe she already is the next big thing. I think she already is the next big thing, or at least very, very close to it. And yeah, I think the way that she's progressed as a rider and seeing her in the lead up to this race, she's been there in every single race she's done. And I think if she, if it had been a different situation team wise, she would have had opportunities before this, but she's always been working for Vanderbregen or Chantel Vanderbrook black or any of the other SC works riders. It's super rare that someone who's brand new to racing and brand new to a team gets a shot at a win like this. And they, the fact that the team was like, okay, we're tapping Volering for this. I think part of it is definitely Vanderbregen and how Volering rode at flesh will own Vanderbregen said in, in the run-up that the decision that Demi Volering made to chase down Ruth Winder, no hesitation, just jumped on the front and put in the effort to bring back that group or bring back that rider was really kind of a key moment for Vanderbregen being like, okay, I'm really happy to ride for her. And I think if you'd seen how she'd raced last year, even it was a good indication of how she was going to go this year. Plus the benefit of being on SD works with amazing riders like uh, Anna Vanderbregen, who she can learn from. So yeah, I'm I'm not at all shocked to see this. What I like about Volowing is that she's got the right name for cycling, doesn't she? I can see a couple of years down the road from here, it's like people going, oh man, I was at race today and I was absolutely Volowing. I absolutely smashed everyone. <laughs> it's def- definitely going to get That's in our lexicon, isn't it, I reckon? <laughs> Yeah, I was doing a Mercs, but I was doing a volume today. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the men's race. Yeah, the men's race was another example of how I think that the change to parkour, uh, bringing this race to Liège instead of the finish in A, which had kind of grown stale. Uh, another example of how that has really, yeah, made things, it's improved things. The, the race is better. The race is uh, more entertaining now with the, the finish in Liège, and we we tended to, for several years, get this situation where riders would just wait until that kind of final uphill drag into on, and now, yet again, another good, a good uh, change of pace there. And we had a number of attacks kind of on those late climbs uh, to sort of whittle things down. The peloton just kept shrinking uh, as kind of the riders were coming, coming into those last few climbs. Um, and then Richard Carpas soloed away for a little while, uh, maybe for, for 10 minutes, uh, on the run into he, the, the Côte de la roche Falcon, he was brought back uh, after having hunched himself over the bars in an aerodynamic fashion. Uh, and we can come back to that in a little bit. Uh, he was brought back, and then on that climb, uh, Mike Woods uh, spurred an attack that also drew out Julian Alaphilippe, Alejandro Valverde, David Gaudu, and Tade Pogacar. And that group of five, five very strong riders, uh, got a decent gap and then just kind of kept it. I think it's, 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 they didn't have a big, big gap at any point, but it's such a strong group that there wasn't much, uh, there wasn't much chance of, get, of them getting caught from the, from the group behind. It's just too, too much firepower in that front group. And they held on into Liège to kind of play a cat and mouse game in that final 500 meters or so, where... Uh, there's a, there's a final curve in which, uh, pretty impressively, everybody managed to, uh, allow Alejandro Valverde to take the front, which you wouldn't expect. Alejandro Valverde is, he is a veteran. He has been around for a little while. I believe he, uh, just turned 41. So this is not somebody you think is often going to find himself in these tactically, uh, not great positions, but he did. He, uh, he was coaxed onto the front for that final run in. Uh, the serious cat and mouse with a, I don't know, five, 400 meters to go. And it, you know, that, that sort of foreshortened lens saw you saw the chasers coming in. Uh, so they, they did have to eventually pick up the pace. Uh, and they did, uh, with, with 300 meters to go, the, 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 the pace started to pick up and then you got the sprint, uh, finally happened with Julian Alaphilippe and Tade Pogacar farthest back and, and probably in the best position for that sprint. Uh, and Alaphilippe kind of surged to the front, as you, everybody would have expected, because he's a very fast sprinter. I think if you'd gotten odds there in that last, you know, 30 seconds of the race, he's the odds-on favorite by a mile to win that sprint. But he didn't, because Tade Pogacar, the reigning Tour de France champion, came around and beat him 
beat Julian Alaphilippe, who has won actual real sprints against big-name sprinters, and Tadej Pogacar beat him anyway uh, on the line and celebrated emphatically at the line. So second year in a row that a Slovenian Grand Tour star has taken the win at Liege Best on Liege. Primoz Roglic, of course, won last year. And it was pretty, uh, pretty surprising, pretty entertaining. Uh, if you're a Julian Alaphilippe fan, obviously you weren't pleased, but to see Tadej Pogacar, the, the reigning tour champ, win this race over Julian Alaphilippe, was, it was remarkable. We haven't seen a reigning tour champ win a monument, I think, since Merckx. It's been a long time. Uh, and, and for the fact that Pogacar was able to do this, I think it just speaks volumes to how talented he is, how versatile he is, um, and tactically how smart he is. I mean, he was in perfect position for that sprint. Julian Alaphilippe was right there. He, he did what you would have expected him to do. He was set up for the win that I think most people expected him to take. And Pogaccio beat him anyway. So the fact that all this played out the way it did made for a great entertaining watch. And uh, a, just a huge win for, for Pogaccio to kind of cap off, or to, I, I guess to, to turn things around. Because his past few weeks have been kind of rough. Uh, he had really hoped to race at La Flesh Wallone, but uh, COVID positives in the team meant that UAE was not there. And so... He raced Liège without having raced Flesh, and of course last year at at, uh, at Liège things didn't really go according to plan. Uh, so this was this was his one chance, and he took it, and he yeah made the most of it. Uh, so big big win for Pogacar, and uh, another example of just how talented he is as a, a very versatile rider. He, he can really do it all. Do we talk about Roglic at all over the past past week? That just because apparently he's not going to be racing until. Well, the tour now, which is mad when you think about it. That's a, that's a long, long time. He's not going to be doing Dauphiné, Swiss, anything like that. And he's had, well, well, he's had good legs, hasn't he, this past weekend, past, past seven days. Nearly took Liège. And you just think, how is he going to keep that ticking over? Or how is he going to sort of level off and then come back for the tour without getting any race in him? It's interesting. I feel like the... Um... The sort of MO for a lot of Grand Tour contenders for years was kind of build everything around the Tour and not really focus on much else. And I guess we're kind of seeing that with the way that Roglic and, and other riders as well are going to kind of go into the Tour with very little racing over the next few months because they're going to go to altitude training. Uh, but on the other hand, if they are going to race, it's great to see them really going for it and, and trying to win monuments, trying to win one-day races because that is just not something that we have seen from many of, of the real bona fide Tour de France contenders, with the exception of Vincenzo Nibali, uh, none of the Sky guys really went that hard at any of the spring classics. I, there was, you know, I guess uh, Lombardia is a little bit of a different story, but it's, I mean, it's been years since we had real Tour de France contenders like Pogacar and Roglic going for it at Flesh and going for it at Liège, that kind of thing, and they're really actually being real contenders. So if they're going to take a long break off like Roglic is, at least they're focusing their efforts and really trying to win these races, which is, which is good because otherwise we would get uh, the situation where we don't see the tour contenders for basically most of the year. And it's nice that we we're not having that this year. The, the only slight difference this year, there was the tour is a bit earlier, isn't it? With the planned Olympics. Um, so it's actually not that, yeah, it's not that far until it's not the usual two months. It's, it's slightly under two months now, which, uh, I guess maybe factors into their their thinking when they're when they're building his program now to to take him towards the tour. But yeah, certainly it'd be strange not to see one of the favourites for the tour at either Switzerland or or the Dauphiné. Yeah, there's not going to be any sharpening of the the race skills, the the fine tuning done during racing, which is which which blows me away. Really, clearly they know what they're doing at training camps to get this real fine race tuning nailed because they have. Uh, Jumbo Visma have already released the the lineup for the Tour de France. I don't know if you've all seen that. Yeah, we've seen uh, some news on, on that front, not to get away from Liège too much, but uh, Tom Dumoulin looks like not going to be at the Tour this year, but he was on the list of riders who could get vaccinated for the Olympics. So who knows whether he's going to be coming back soon or not. But uh, I, I want to get back to Liège because I want to talk about Alejandro Valverde and how he finished on the podium at age 41. Uh, Another man who can get vaccinated in most countries without having to get any paperwork done. Oh, he definitely oof. sits within the right age group. Yeah. Oh man, don't let him hear that. Uh, yeah, Valverde finished on the podium at Flesh, finished fourth at Liège. 
clearly has plenty left in the tank. Um, I think he had talked about retiring at the end of this year, and since he kind of first said that, he's now hinted that he might not do that. And having finished fifth, sorry, in the top five in the last three one days he was at, I mean, it's hard to blame him for wanting to keep it going. Uh, he's definitely still capable of winning bike races, and and I think just the fact that we're still seeing him going strong is is really impressive. And also, it's really big for Movistar because the team it just haven't found a way to replace him with riders who can do anything close to what he has been able to do. They've tried. They've they've brought in guys like Enric Mas. They they have Miguel Ana Lopez. They've got plenty of talented riders, but nobody has emerged to uh, come even close to kind of taking out the Valverde mantle. So. He's just still doing it himself, and that's uh, it's impressive. And you got, if you're uh, Eusebio Unsue, you have to be pretty happy that Valverde uh, is still managing to to pull some UCI points in for your team, uh, even at age 41. I'm so you mentioned. <laughs> Sorry, I was just I'm going to be sad to see him go. He's an ace rider to watch, isn't he? I mean, if the pace is going, he might not be going anytime soon. Uh, who knows what he'll say next year if he keeps pulling up, you know, top fives and big races. We'll see. Drop down to Masters Racing. I don't know if it would be competitive enough for him. Oh, you've clearly not been to a Masters Racing, have you? (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned Sky a little bit earlier, Dane. And one of the things that I found really interesting about the race was Ineos' tactics. Because at one point, they looked like they were the strongest team on the board. There with uh, When Teo Gegenhart really set the pace on La Redoute, and broke the peloton apart, and then the attacks by Kwiatkowski and uh, and Carapaz, but then they really weren't anywhere to be found when the real action happened and and the race was decided. Yeah, I think they probably had. It must have been tough for them this week, thinking that Pitcock was not going to race, and then he was going to race, and then he's not going to race. So he ended up not racing at Liège, and I would assume they'd kind of built around him for the finale because. Carapaz is probably not going to want to sprint. And Kwiatkowski, maybe five years ago, would have won a sprint when he was at the top of his game. But, he, you know, Kwiatkowski just has not been the same rider uh, that he was five years ago recently. He's, he's very different. I think he's the kind of guy you send up the road in the attack these days. Uh, so they'd probably built for the finale thinking that, you know, we've got Pitcock for that. And without him, I don't really know what they were going to be able to accomplish. So I, 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 I kind of can't blame them for trying some unconventional things when they're you know, best kind of finisher wasn't there. Um, is it, yeah, it, it would have been cool to see Kwiatkowski or Karpas kind of hold on for a little bit longer, but I, I just don't think either one of them kind of has quite the, the firepower to hold off the, the, the big names in this race, at least not anymore. Uh, maybe Kwiatkowski will find that again. He's still, rel- I mean, he's only 30, uh, but, but he's just not the same rider who won San Remo or was, you know, constantly a favorite for this race. Although if Karpas had stayed off the front, it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered. We should talk about that. Uh, Richard Carpass was disqualified from Liege Bastogne Liege, the biggest, highest profile rider yet to be DQ'd from a race for super tucking, which uh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about turning that into a, a verb, but uh, sorry, I'm doing it. He's super tucked at Liege Bastogne Liege, and uh, he was, he was uh, kicked out. He, well, actually, he finished the race, and then they ultimately uh, kicked him off the results. Uh, he really, uh, it's really questionable whether he technically super tucked his, his butt was still on the, he touched the saddle. It was still, there was contact and the, the real rule says, you know, you're supposed to have some contact point on the saddle. Uh, it, it was borderline, but I was a little surprised that it was deemed a super tuck and deemed disqualification worthy, but he was tossed and he did it for like three seconds. It was not a long period in which he was doing this. Uh, so another area, kind of like the, the bottle throwing rule, where I, I think the UCI could stand to add a little more nuance to the rule or to the penalty. Um, I, I can understand the, the why they want to ban the super tuck. I get that. Uh, and I can understand why they want to come down hard on it. But there's a difference between super tucking for 30 seconds on a really dangerous descent and getting into an aerodynamic position where you are still touching the saddle for three seconds or so. And getting disqualified. I mean, maybe that's a, maybe they could make that a fine. Maybe they could make that a UCI point uh, docking. But actually disqualifying a rider from the race, uh, it, it was uh, a bit surprising. And I think a situation where the UCI could really stand to change the rules or just face the fact that fans are going to be pissed off at the end of 
every race where this happens because anytime this happens, it's just the, the Twitter sphere just explodes with people hating on the UCI. The one thing I question though is when you know, even though he was not you know totally totally super talking, he he wasn't like sitting on the top tube. I think most people watching that happen will agree that he was in a super talk position, whether or not he was actually sitting on the top tube. And yes, it seemed like his butt was in contact with the nose of the saddle. So even if technically yeah, it seems like maybe there's some gray area as to whether or not he was really violating the actual letter of the law. Um, it, it seemed like if, if the spirit of the rule is to not have a rider in that position, then I think it's pretty obvious that he broke the rule. Um, as for whether or not that sort of thing should be, you know, should result in like a warning first or an immediate disqualification, that sort of thing. I guess one question is if you, if, if you are regarding the super, like if you consider the super talk to be, I guess, not just unsafe, if the UCI is also looking at it and considering it now to be sort of an unfair advantage, then if you're in a situation where you're in a solo breakaway and you know, even if you are, even if you're in that position just for a few seconds, that few seconds could potentially be the difference between staying away and not staying away. And then at that point, let's say someone super talks for three, four, five seconds or whatever. And let's say that rider gets a warning. I mean, hasn't the damage already been done? That's where I actually think the UCI have missed a trick in that. I think if you're a, a solo rider in a breakaway, you should be permitted to super talk and use the invisible arrow bars to excite, you know, add a bit of excitement to the racing and give the breakaway a slight advantage. Ban it, ban it in the bunch, but we all want to see exciting racing. So, you know, in the in this situation with Carapaz, yeah, let, let him wail away with his super talking invisible arrow bars and, and gain that small advantage that, you know, obviously wasn't going to make a difference yesterday because you still had that, uh, the the Foucault final climb um, and, and Carapaz was caught, you know, midway up that. So it, it, it wasn't a determining factor for him yesterday, but you know, many of the time we see a, a sole rider surviving in the closing kilometers of a race and yeah, to bring that finish right, right down to nail bite and finish, you know, just being able to drape their hands with the handlebars could, could make that, could make that difference. Well, yeah, like that's the other side of the argument, obviously. Right. Because I mean, I think I've mentioned before I watched formula one and the, there are rules in that sport where, you know, they're specifically there to increase competitiveness. Like this whole thing with the, they have this thing called the drag reduction system where you can open up a flap essentially on the rear wing to get more straight line speed. And you're only allowed to do that if you're within a second of the person in front of you. So it doesn't necessarily let you pull away from everyone else. But if you're, if you're about to catch somebody, then it lets, it, it makes it more likely that you can pull off a pass, which is specifically designed to make the racing more exciting. I mean, and so for, for me, like, I like to see stuff like that because as a spectator, that does make it more exciting. So yeah, I mean, Ronan, I think I would agree with you that if, if the UCI were to do anything, like if they would allow that sort of thing for solo breakaways, then that could be super cool. Or if we enter just a drag reduction system for solo breakaways. <laughs> yes, that too. That too. To your point about trying to, uh, you know, enforce rules strictly and, and, and not make, make sure nobody gets an unfair advantage. And I actually think that's a really resonating point because if, if nobody's doing something and one person does it, then it's obviously a big advantage. That, that, I think the issue is that the way some of these rules are written, uh, inherently they're, they're going to be broken all the time whether or not people intend to do so. I mean, you, you have to wear a helmet at all times when you're riding. So what, when you take a helmet off for, for five seconds to run your hand through your hair to cool down, you're not wearing a helmet. If you hunch over the bars in an okay position, but then you raise your butt off the saddle just to, you know, reduce some numbness for a second, then you're not touching the saddle anymore. There's, I think there's all, all, all number of instances where all the time people will find themselves in positions where they are technically in violation of the law, of the way that it's written. Uh, just because that's kind of how bike racing works. People are moving around on the bike all the time. And I think there needs to be some nuance there to allow for that and to also allow for riders to, particularly right now, uh, get into a position and then one second or two seconds later realize, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to do this anymore and stop. Which, you know, when, when Mickey Shaw threw that bottle at uh, Flanders, he immediately knew that he wasn't supposed to have done that. It was sort of a, I think it was sort of just an innate thing where, oh, I have a bottle, I'm going to toss it to these fans. And then the moment that he did it, he realized, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. And it was too late. Uh, but giving somebody a one or two second window in which to adjust their position on the bike 
or realize, oh wait, I'm not supposed to do this. Uh, I think it would at least make for a far less pissed off fan base, uh, which I think the UCI could stand to could stand to have right now because people seem to really be hating the UCI in the past two months. Nothing new there, though, Dane, is there? <laughs> That's true. But it, it kind of seems to quiet down for a little while, and then it'll pick up again because they'll do something else that, that ticks people off, and then it'll quiet down, and then, you know, new rule. Yeah. And, and theoretically, and in the Mickey Shower example, had he turned back to pick the bottle up after realizing it was a mistake, he could have been disqualified for riding the course backwards. Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So once he had once he had thrown the bottle, it was a it was a no one situation for him. But it would have been quite interesting to see what would have happened. Yeah, if he had picked the bottle up. Well, maybe they could have disqualified him twice, and then yeah, it's okay. You, you know, double negative cancels out. You're good to go. You're still in the race. Well, they would have had to check the fans as well for COVID. So that would have been the problem there because he would have been outside the bubble. Well, what what if what if it a all fan gets complicated? What if he had just stopped on the side of the road and then the fan had run the bottle back up to him and he put it back on his bike? Hmm. Yeah. Outside assistance. <laughs> oh, man. There's a rule against Rough. everything. There's a rule for that. There's always a rule for that. I mean, it's really interesting that you all bring up uh, exciting racing because like Dane said at the very beginning of this podcast, we've had a ton of exciting racing recently and we're just kind of waiting for that to teeter off a little bit. And I feel like this is a problem that is ripe in, in like, sorry, but men's cycling, women's cycling sometimes as well, but I think more so men's cycling just because the teams um, are able to control the races more thoroughly that there's, there's been years past where the racing has really been, uh, been less than exciting. And the fact that there are kind of rules that are making potentially making the the racing less exciting i don't know it's kind of interesting to me do you think the women's racing can get away with more uh, like tossing the bottle getting in the super tuck because they're not televised as much do you reckon they get away with more more bits and pieces like that i mean no because there was a rider disqualified from uh from flanders for tossing a bottle um thank goodness they changed that rule because Demi Vollering would have been disqualified from Liege-Bastogne-Liege for tossing a bottle in the final 10 kilometers. Um, she did get fined, but she did not get disqualified. Or would she have not done it? You know, maybe she did it knowing, oh, I'm only going to get fined, so it's fine. <laughs> I don't know. She picked like a really bad spot to toss it. It hit the barrier and rebounded into Elisa Longo-Borghini. So it was, I mean, it was a bad place to toss a bottle. It's exactly why the rule was invented. Like after Gary Thomas yeah. crashed out of the Giro last year because of some really <laughs> bad luck like that. So that is a great example of why the rule exists. Yeah, that's yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's get into the races coming up. Dane, what is next? I want to look back at the Tour of the Alps real quick to talk about what's coming up because we don't need to go through exactly what happened at the Tour of the Alps. Simon Yates won quite handily. Uh, big win for him with the Giro only well less than two weeks away now. Uh, Yates ahead of Peo Bilbao and Alexander Vlasov at the Tour of the Alps. So one, Simon Yates looks really good for the Giro, which is coming up. Uh, he's had great success at the Giro in the past uh, for a limited amount of time. If you will recall back in the 2018 Giro, he was on fire. He won three stages that year, and then he just completely uh, exploded in the last week. Uh, went from having the race lead to finishing outside of the top 20 after having a really bad last few days. So looking good heading into the Giro this year for Bike Exchange. Uh, another takeaway from the Tour of the Alps, and just generally with the Giro ahead, is that Thibaut Pino will not be racing the Giro. He had raced the Tour of the Alps to see how he was doing. He's, of course, had some back issues since he crashed in the opening stage of last year's Tour de France. And, you know, he's raced at Torino. He's raced at Tour of the Alps. He's had plenty of racing experience this year, and it just hasn't worked out. He has not really fully uh, overcome that, that back pain and uh, decided, he and the team, I guess, to not start the Giro d'Italia, which is a big bummer for Thibaut Pinot and for French fans. Pinot particularly loves racing in Italy. He's a big fan of Italy, uh, and I'm sure he really wanted to go to the Giro this year, and he won't be there. So no good. Uh, for for a lot of people, and I, I'm a big fan of watching Thibaut Pinot, even if it so often ends up with heartbreak. Uh, and another heartbreaking situation for him to not race the Giro. Uh, one contender down. 
But uh, Yates among those looking good, and uh, we won't have to wait long to see what happens to Jiro because it's yeah less than two weeks away. In the meantime, we get the Tour de Ramadi, which is another uh, another place we're going to see some big names in action. You're going to see, I think, Garen Thomas will be there. Uh, uh, Peter Sagan's going to be there, and it tends to be maybe the maybe the most scenic race on the calendar. Uh, if you like watching riders ride through mountains with you know high alpine lakes all, all around, it's a good race to watch. Uh, also, if you like watching big names like Garen Thomas and Sagan and Richie Port and a few others. Mike Woods, I think, will be there. Sepp Kuss. So yeah, uh, worth watching. It's a six-day race coming up here, which will be the last last big race before the start of Grand Tour season. Sweet. All right. Before we move on to this week's Nerd Nugget, this week's episode is also brought to you by Sportful and their new off-road collection. There are times when you stop and ask yourself why you're doing something. Often the reason is clear, but not knowing is valuable. It's good to realize you just had an idea. It seems great, maybe a little crazy, maybe interesting, and you decided that it could become your mission, your new big goal. So you set out without a reason or a plan. This was the story of Veronica, Florian, and Sam, who set out to find in, an in-real-life version of Zwift's Tour of Ice and Fire throughout the adventure, and over the improvised terrain, Sportful's new off-road collection afforded the three... The comfort and stability of quality kit while never compromising on function with a plethora of pockets for everything you'll need and a piece of clothing for every weather condition. The Sportful Off-Road Collection is the perfect fit for your next adventure. Check out everything they have to offer and more at sportful.com. You can't, you can't. I tell you what, I have found pockets on shorts. At first, I was well against them. Mainly because like a certain brand was advertising by putting a notepad in there, but I've come to love them. I've got a pair of sportful shorts and tights with a pocket in the side, and they're superb for stashing stuff. Haribo, bananas, winter gloves, whatever. I'm well impressed. Yeah, my favorite thing about I've been riding um in this off-road collection as well. And my favorite thing is actually the pockets that are where your pockets would be on your jersey, but in the shorts. Because I wore it, wore the shorts with a sweatshirt the other day, but I still had the pockets in the back to put my phone in. Because I feel like, I, I agree, I really like the pockets on the side, but I would feel weird about putting my phone in there. But putting my phone, there's those really cool pockets on the back of the Sportful uh, off-road bibs that is is like perfect for if you're wearing not a jersey. They know what they're doing, don't they? Yeah. All right. Let's get on to Nerd Nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. James, what are we talking about? Well, earlier in the episode, we were talking about how riders are maybe kind of bending the rules a bit uh, when it comes to the whole super talking thing. Um, but I think whenever you have a situation where you have a governing body making technical rules regarding equipment and that sort of thing, you're going to have riders and teams kind of bending those rules so that riders can go faster. Um, I don't know if this is really technically a, an instance of a rider bending the rule, but, um, we had a pretty interesting instance not too long ago where, uh, we had a very, I guess we just sort of say unusual handlebar. That popped up recently. Uh, I feel like Ronan, actually, you need to introduce this one because you wrote the article and you have a little bit more info in this. But uh, yeah, it's weird. What what are we looking at here? <laughs> uh, well, we were looking at Dan Bigham, who anybody who's into the time trialing or tra or track scene will will know from the. Uh, well, first of all, he's with uh, Team KGF and now with uh, Hood Watt Bike on the track, and he rides for Rebel Weltight on the road so he's a you know fairly accomplished rider had planned to tackle the ucar record last year uh, but that was postponed because of because of covid and that but uh, he has now he's now working for the danish national federation and helping their track squad prepare for the olympics and part of that has he he's he's sort of moved to denmark for for a while and has been doing some road racing there and a photo emerged from a road race he did in denmark the last weekend and i think the well the the reason we're talking about that photo is because it shows dan with these incredibly narrow handlebars um arrow shaped you know tops to the handlebars uh standard drop as you would see on a normal road bike but the main difference is these bars are just 27 centimeters wide at the hoods 
Uh, he then has the levers angled right the way in, uh, so it's even even narrower. And they they do flare out in the drops, but they flare out to a maximum of thirty three centimeters wide, which uh, you know thirty three centimeters wide would be incredibly narrow for for a narrow handlebar. But if that's what they flare out to, it gives you an idea of just how how narrow these things are. So, yeah, they they sort of they came to a lot of people's attention through this photo that emerged from Dan recent recent in Denmark. It sparked a bit of a bit of debate, and I, I reached out to Dan for a bit more information on the handlebars. They are they're they're not directly in you know in in reaction to the recent banning of the you know invisible aero bars by the, by the UCI but I think everybody realized that that rule was was going to be introduced and uh, Dan who who also runs the the watch shop um sort of aerodynamic consultancy group and um online retail store that sort of sells a lot of these aerodynamic aids that we now see in time trailing they they set about developing these handlebars last year first of all to test the difference you know that that a narrow handlebar does provide uh, and rather than just you know relying on cfd data they wanted to test this on the outdoors so they developed these handlebars the last year at the sort of height of lockdown and they're they're still sort of going through testing and, and development stages and, and it was a prototype that dan was dan was writing but nevertheless it's, it's caused quite a bit of stir in the past weekend uh yeah quite a lot of um hot reactions might we say or quite a lot of uh very let's just say they're a bit like marmite and that people don't really seem to <laughs> have 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 no no feeling on them they either love the idea or uh, i think the vast majority of people seem to hate the idea of the bars and are, are actually pointing to you know another safety risk with with having such narrow handlebars i guess first and foremost do we have any sense as to exactly how much drag a bar that narrow is potentially saving as compared to something that's a more normal width? Uh, well, yeah, Dan, you know, I, I, I sort of pressed him for a figure on, on what the savings might be here. And he estimated is probably around about five watts at, at 45 kilometers an hour. Um, that's basically the equivalent of half a second for, for every kilometer ridden. But he was at pains to point out that this, you know, the bar sort of allows him to achieve a position which is going to result in much much greater gains um you know it's it's uh it, the savings that it's it's not like putting on a set of wheels where the savings will be fairly standard for for every rider uh it's it's very much you know how how disciplined you can be in maintaining the position that the bars allow you to to adopt and and being a time trial and track rider uh, dan is you know is is quite good at holding that aerodynamic position uh, and he pointed out that you know he is able to sort of pull off a contortionist act while on the bike, um, and when he when he's making an attack or a solo breakaway, he can really fold down to quite a small frontal area and hold that position while delivering a a, a big effort through the pedals, and and that's sort of where he most uses um, that that position that that the bars can can allow for. But you know, so really. It's it's the shape of the bars and the narrowness of the bars that allow him to get into the different position that's gonna that's gonna make a, a bigger difference. And one of the things that you know we we have seen riders in recent years angle their levers and notably um, Remco of and a few and a few other riders are already using you know maybe forty or thirty eight centimeter wide handlebars and then narrowing the the levers in further. But one of the sort of pitfalls of that design or that idea is that. It, can shoot your elbows out if you're not, you know, disciplined and and maintaining that narrow tucked elbow position, and that actually it can end up costing you more drag than the narrow handlebars can save you. So it, it really it isn't just as simple as putting on a narrow set of handlebars here. You've obviously first of all got to get familiar with the with what I imagine would be quite twitchy handling from having such narrow handlebars, and um, but then after that you've got to. You know, maintain the composure and the focus late into a race when you're making these solo efforts. That yes, I have to keep my elbows tucked in and I have to keep my head down and I have to pretend that I'm in a time trial while I've got two hundred dollar riders chasing me and I've got corners to navigate and that. So, not not quite just a fit and forget arrow or you know arrow gain, yeah. But but as you said, if he comes from uh, Great Britain, he will have that time trial background from an, an early age. His, his parents would have sent him out on a 
a busy B road at early hours of the morning, five o'clock in the morning when he's 13 to go up and down. So we've learned how to hold his position. But uh, like you said, there's been plenty of riders recently with using narrow bars. I think the first one, what, which who I noticed was Adam Hansen, who went to 38. And he said it was more to do with fitting through gra- gaps in the closing kilometres because he is a big guy for, well, when he was leading Greipel out. And then I think recently after that, well, more recently, there was a guy from Rompot team about three years ago. Jan William Vanskip. Yeah, he had a similar setup, if I remember rightly, and um, caused a bit of controversy there. And I think a lot of the riders were complaining, if I remember rightly, about how the bike was going to be handling in the peloton. They were more worried about that rather than him dashing off the front. So, yeah, I... I... I shared the story that, that I wrote last week on, on my social channels and quite a lot of reaction I got war, was from riders in the peloton complaining about how dangerous this could be. Uh, there didn't seem to be, you know, pros are notorious for being slow to uptake new technology, but it seemed like a resounding no from the pro peloton. We will not be even thinking about using these. Match that with a nice stubby stem. <laughs> be all over the spot. Well, it's like the like the the crazy fixie bar craze, right? Like when when you had like little straight fixie bars that were I don't know, like barely too, barely enough to put your hands on, right? Like it was like it was like the hot thing for a little while. And uh, I mean, I, I think some of that was motivated by you know a lot of urban riding and and actually trying to fit through gaps like between cars and people and that sort of thing. Um, but I I, I wonder if. I mean, everyone's speculating, is is the UCI going to crack down on something like this? And even then, it's sort of a question of how would they? Is it going to be like, you, know, you can't run a bar that's some certain percentage narrower than your shoulders? Or like, you know, I mean, from from a rule writing perspective, it's like it, it seems like it'd be fairly difficult to put something down on paper that would, you know, really adequately and accurately identify what they deem would be wrong about this sort of setup and how would you fix it they're just gonna say oh you can't use bars that are narrower than x like you can't they're not saying oh your socks can't be higher than x percentage of your calf right i guess i mean if they were to limit it to like i don't know 36 centimeters or something like that i mean i I think it would i think it would almost have to be like a percentage of some sort of body dimension though because you know you could have like Emma Pooley, for example, when she was when she was racing, like I don't know what width bar she was on, but you know, a thirty-six centimeter bar or even narrower may have actually been the right size for her. Is there the other rules that the UCI have about specific uh, bike measurements, especially when it comes to time trials? Do they have rules in place that you can think of that are not conducive to certain body types, like that certain? So if you're a certain height or something, that it really is a problem that the rules don't allow them to ride a specific setup. You can get a, a dispensation to, you know, if you're above a certain height, I can't remember the exact height now, but you can you can have a, a longer reach to the end of your time trial extensions. And if, you know, if you're within an, another height that your saddle can be further forward than five centimeters behind the bottom bracket. And, you know, if it's a full moon and the stars are aligned in a certain way and all the conditions are met you can then uh, have a have a tilt of greater than one degree on on your saddle yeah i'm exaggerating <laughs> now but you, you get you get the point that there it's uh it's far from far far from you know as it should be and, and the perfect example is is bike weight here you know everybody has to ride a 6.8 kilogram bike regardless of how big or small you are and that if you're a 80 kilo rider or a 60 kilo rider you know that 6.8 kilos is a, is a bigger percentage of the of the total rider and bike system so you know that you could argue that unfairly punishes smaller riders that's something that actually ashley moment passio and i talked about in an episode of freewheeling recently that is a reason that's where i got the idea yeah that climbers specifically <laughs> climbers specifically are really gravitating towards swift and especially women because for women the rules about bike weight it's based on a male body so it really doesn't make any sense when it comes to a rider like katie hall for example who's i mean i don't know exactly how tall she is five three she's short and like very very small her bike having to weigh the same as adam hansen is kind of a ridiculous rule 
if you think about it. Yeah, you don't even need to think about it. Um, it is. <laughs> uh, but anyway, back to handlebars. I, you know, we have seen a lot of attention lately uh, with people running unconventional handlebar setups. Uh, like there was that, uh, uh, I think it was a Dutch shop. Was it? Uh, Spico. Is it Dutch or Belgian? I can't remember now. Um, but th- there was that company. Uh, but there was that company Spico that was running those, or th- they were making those really, really insanely wild custom carbon drop handlebars, where it basically had a had a support built in for your forearms. Um, which is, I'm actually not even sure if those would technically violate the UCI rule, where you're not allowed. I mean, your hands are still on the bar, and you have forearm support. So, but the UCI rule says you may not rest your forearms on the handlebars. So. To me, that's going to be an easy solution for the UCA and, and, and as they call it, pr- protecting the, the image of the sport. Uh, they'll, they'll quickly be able to ban that one, whereas for narrower handlebars, they, you know, they have to come up with some, some minimum width that doesn't exist already. I, I, I think the Spico one might, might struggle to, to make its way into the Pro Peloton because it, it, it is so easily outlawed under current regulations. It's so radical, so, so radical. But I mean, I think all of this still just points to the fact that, you know, anytime you have rules that are meant to, I guess, sort of ostensibly level the playing field. I mean, just by nature of the fact that it's competition, you are going to have people who are going to not only try, but very likely succeed in figure out ways to get around those rules so that riders can still have an advantage. So it's, it's just always this you know, kind of arms race, for so to speak. No, no pun intended. Forearms race. Yes, it's a forearms <laughs> race. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Do we know like how much more dangerous having a narrow bar is in terms, like, compared to a wider bar in terms of riding in the peloton, and specifically, I think of of descending. I I can't quantify how much. You know, I, I haven't tried these bars. Uh, I'm kind of excited to try them to see. You know how how much of a difference it does make to bike handling. Um, maybe just for some solo riding to start with. Certainly until I get used to it. Uh, but um, you know, it, it probably I imagine it is one of those things that's very trainable. You know, the you know riders can and the human body in general can adapt to quite a bit. And you know, just sitting in a cycling position to start with isn't really natural. And then you know, if you have ever ridden forty four centimeter wide bars and then moved to narrower 40 or 38s the difference is notable for the first couple of spins and then you you do quickly get used to it um no i I don't know at which point you stop getting used to it and it just becomes uncontrollable um but you know theoretically and that's part of what dan is is claiming as well is that you know spend a bit of time getting used to it and it it does become quite natural and and i actually seen a picture tweeted last week that had uh two track sprinters uh, using very narrow handlebars, and it was shocking because it was like a it was it was it was a comp- it was showing that the the track sprinter who won the sprint was using thirty centimeter wide handlebars. So first of all, you can sprint effectively with narrow handlebars. Um, but then it was also I I thought first of all looking at the photo that it was making a comparison between the width of their handlebars and sort of pointing to that maybe was the reason that the rider had won. Uh, and and the difference between the two handlebars looked huge. I was certain that the the rider in second place was using like forty two or forty four centimeter handlebars, but in fact the rider in second place was using I think it was thirty seven centimeter wide handlebars. But just in, so that is already super narrow. But in comparison to these thirty centimeter handlebars, they look humongous. So yeah, there's there's certainly riders on the track already using bars that narrow. Slightly different though, being in a you know a, a two up sprint on the on the track to being in a you know a, a peloton you know careering into the final kilometer at at sixty kilometers per hour with with other riders all around you and you know road furniture and corners to deal with and you know other other riders moving about in the bunch that that's that's a different story entirely. I mean, I suspect that the acceptance of bars that narrow will depend a lot on how well riders who are actually using those bars can handle themselves. So my, my suspicion is that if a few people start running bars that narrow and they seem to be able to handle their bikes just fine or just as they normally would be able to, then maybe people won't have much of an, an, an objection to it. But 
you know, it's like when you have sort of the sketchy rider in a, in a group ride, right? Like this, the, everyone knows who that sketchy rider is and it doesn't take very long for that rider to get pushed toward the back and be like, yo, you are endangering everyone else on here. get back there and stay there. Yeah. You know, if, if that's the sort of situation that you have with a super narrow handlebar in the pro Peloton, that I think that I think it'll self-police pretty quickly. And then at that point, you know, maybe the UCI would step in. I, I don't know, but I, I think that sort of thing would handle, would handle itself internally pretty, pretty well. One, one last thing to note about the handlebars and the race that Dan Bigham did last weekend. He neither won nor crashed. So I don't know what that says about the handlebars. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, hey, you know, I mean, we're all talking about them right now. So who knows? If nothing else, it was, it was cheap marketing, I guess. All right. So that is all we've got for the Cycling Tips podcast today. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week for more in the world of bikes.